Would you open with me to 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's open in prayer. Father, this morning we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that Your Word is sufficient to tell us what's right and what's wrong and how to get right and stay right. We thank You that You're present. Your Spirit is present that will guide and strengthen, will reveal all truth to us. And Lord, that's what we want to know today is Your truth, the truth that, that would set us free. So we ask, Lord, that You would speak, speak to each of us. That we might hear You. We might follow You and heed the message. And all God's people said, Amen. For those that are visiting today, Calvary Chapel, as Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse. And we find ourselves in chapter 5, verses 17 through 25 today. And it's regarding leaders. Now, when we talk about, again, the book of Timothy, one of the things that we learn about Timothy that's so important to understand is that Paul's expressing to Timothy the importance of character. Godly character. Holiness. That we are to be a light. We're to be a witness. Now in all of Paul's books when he writes, the first half of Paul's book will focus upon doctrine. That's teaching. Those are the things that we need to know. When we come to the second half of Paul's book, it focuses on the application. How is this to work in our life? What is it to look like? What do we need to do? Now remember, this is the Word of God. This is not the Word of men. Men are, again, the ones that are speaking, but it's the Holy Spirit moving upon them, putting the very words in their mouth, leading, prompting them. Well, let's read our text together, and we'll look at it together. Verse 17, it begins, The elders who rule well are considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who continue in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without a bias. Do nothing in the spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, thereby share in the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them in judgment. For others, the sins follow after them. Likewise also, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. The focus upon the ending of this chapter is the elders. And elders are those that are leaders, those who God has chosen how do you know an elder he will be i use that expression kind of making up the word twisting the word they're eldering they're doing what's naturally they're watching over the flock of god they're the the overseers they're the ones that are praying with people we'll talk about that more in detail now in a in a jewish or hebrew culture and even the arabic culture uh, the elders were the the older people but elders aren't necessarily just older, gray-headed people. Sometimes I've seen some very young people that are very mature. It really speaks about maturity more than anything else. Now look with me in verse 17. It says, The elders who rule well are considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, notice the work is marked here of preaching and teaching. An elder for the most part, will preach and will teach. There are those that are preaching and teaching elders. 
And the same gift given to different people will function a little different. Now the preaching speaks again of an announcement, a proclaiming. It is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the teaching is the feeding of the sheep. Now what he's talking about, the elders who rule well, it means they're in this position. They're in a leadership. Peter talks about that they're not to lord over the flock. They're not to control every decision. If you want to buy a car, you don't need to come to them. But they're the spiritual leaders and they lead you in all truth. They, They use the Word of God to guide you, to direct you, to come alongside you in difficult times and open the Word of God, impart the Word of God and say, the Bible says... And that's important. When you're speaking to people, you tell them what the Bible says or what God says. Because God's Word is timeless. God's Word is truth. And when a person knows the truth, the truth sets them free. Now the preaching, I mentioned again, is an oral proclamation. All of us are to proclaim the Gospel... And it's the Bible that you and I need to hear. And it's the Word of God that we need to be manifest in our lives. When the Spirit of God comes into our lives, this Word, when you and I partake of it, it becomes flesh in us. And it leads us and guides us. I was talking with a brother this week, and and I asked him, he had shoes on, and I said, you know, you don't have to think about how you tie those shoes anymore. And he kind of laughed at me. No, I know how to tie the shoes. I don't think about it. Well, that's what happens when you get the Word of God in you. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to ask, God, is this your will or is that your will? You just know the will of God because God is in you and His Word guides you and directs you. This is why it's so important that we need preaching. Those that bring people to Christ and the teaching of it, grounding people in the Word of God. Not just the parents, but the kids. Learning how to rightly divide this word of truth. Because that's what people need to know. Now it's important to understand that elders are are called upon. Elders are called to to pray for the congregation, pray for those that are sick, to anoint them with oil, this little thing here. Oil, though, is only symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That when we pray for somebody, we're really committing them to the work of the Holy Spirit. When you and I pray for somebody, that we pray for a healing, and certainly we pray for healing, it all boils down to one thing. Is it God's will? And is it God's timing? But we commit them to the Word of God. So the elders, again, you're to come to the elders. In the context of James chapter 5, in the context of that passage, if someone's sick, he has to come to the elders. They're to pray for him, anoint him, lay hands upon him, and they will be healed. Did you get that? They will be healed. But they're not always healed, are they? Because the context of that passage, if you read more, talks about sin, if they're being disciplined by the Lord, if someone is in sin and they recognize it, God's discipline and they're to come to the elders confess their sin to the elders and this is important to understand lord i acknowledge what you're doing i acknowledge my sin now i'm confessing it openly to them not to you in privacy okay this is important to understand and they'll be healed and it's only in that context do they guarantee a healing every time well, the elders are, are the ones that come alongside the weak when people are, are just struggling with sin, struggling physically weakness to, to come alongside them, help them, minister them, maybe even delegate others to go along with them. Going to life care center, different places and, and meeting with people because ministry is very important. Where does ministry start? Well, it starts with God and it is to people. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for everyone in this world. No matter what their sinful state is, Jesus Christ died for them. And we are to come to them, to encourage them, 
to lift them up, no matter what their struggle is, if they want to know God, we come alongside, just as the Holy Spirit does. Elders are to refute error. When people bring different doctrines in that are inconsistent with the Bible, is to say that is not what the Bible says. Let me show you what the Bible says. In a loving, kind, caring way. Not in condescending, but in a way that people want to understand that truth that will set them free. The elders also commission the leaders. They, they send out missionaries or other pastors or other elders. This is the responsibility of they preach and teach and they shepherd the flock of God. They watch over and they feed the flock of God, leading them and guiding them in all truth. So these elders that are doing these things, then they're doing it well, not lording over people, are worthy of a double honor. Now, oftentimes this verse is abused, and that's, you know, it's interesting that we're here because certain denominations often say, the elder, the pastor, is worthy of this double honor, but it means a double salary. It does not say that. That is not the principle that it's teaching here in the Word of God, and it's important to understand that honor is one of respect. Respect for what? That position that God has called them and, and what He is to do and all that He is to go through. And at the same time, it is to provide for him the finances because if this person rules well and he's preaching and teaching the Word of God, he's spending a lot of time in prayer. If you remember in Acts chapter 6, and this is important to understand, there was this division in the church. Division over the widows who are being fed and who are not being fed. And he says, look, you need to decide. You need to work this out. Here's, here's how you're to do it. Delegating it to them. We're not waiters on a table, but what we need to do is pray and study and proclaim the Word of God. But they rule, in a sense, from the back seat. All they do is bring you to the Word of God. Explain it. And those that rule well are worthy of respect. They're fulfilling the calling that God has given them. God calls a person... God enables a person. I believe that every one of us here have a calling in life. And we'll either reject it or we'll respond to it. We'll be either faithful or unfaithful. When we choose to say, God, I will follow you, He will make you faithful. He will gird you up. He will give you what you need to do what you're called to do. If you're a husband and you're to, to love your wife, love her as Christ loves the church, and guys say, oh man, that's hard. That's just because we're men. But God, if He calls you, He will enable you, and He'll put the desire in your life to be willing to lay down your life for your wife. And as you do that, you'll be doing it unto the Lord. So the honor first is, is, is one of respect. Respecting the position. But at the same time, you show kindness. You show respect to the person in that position. And it's a double honor. So first, it shows, again, he's worthy of respect because he's God's servant and he's serving God's people. And we're not to hinder the work of God. Secondly, if he is devoted fully to that work in prayer, in the study of the Word, he's worthy of financial help so that he can be freed in order to spend that time. Just as Paul, as he would be a tent maker, but oftentimes, again, those that were with him were working and helping him support so he could study, he could pray, he could evangelize, he could use the gifting that God has called him. That's what the passage is. It's not just about money. It's about showing honor and respect. And we're in a generation, a society, where there's little respect anymore. Now, again, it's important to understand that these that are worthy of honor are those that are faithful. They've ruled faithful. They're in the Word. They're, 
they're, they're studying, they're proclaiming. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this. He reminds us again, God puts great emphasis upon His Word. Let me ask you a question. How much does your Word mean? When you speak to somebody, are you speaking truth? Can people trust you? Can people believe in you? God puts emphasis upon His Word because His words are words of life. The psalmist uh, under this, understood this very well because he placed this great desire in his heart. In fact, let me read from Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your Word. The Word will direct you. When you hide it in your heart, it will keep you on that straight and narrow path. Psalm 119.11 says this, Your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. See, the person that is in sin cannot be hiding this word in his heart. So the, the care is to take it and treasure it, value it, put great emphasis upon it. This is important. I use a word that you marinate your minds that it becomes such a part of you. Psalm 119.67 says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Here it's talking about again that the Lord disciplined him. He knew that. But now I keep the word. The reason for discipline is to bring us back in line with him. In Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When you are hurting, when you're going through trials and storms, it is sweet, it's comforting, it's encouraging. When I've done a funeral for a Christian, when they know the hope, the hope that the world does not have, it is so sweet. It carries them and strengthens them. Again, Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So it guides us. See, God puts great emphasis upon His Word. And because God has put great emphasis upon His Word, we should put great emphasis upon the Word. The Word will guide us in all truth. The Spirit takes that Word and guides us in all truth. And this is important to understand. This is why He puts emphasis upon honoring those who study and teach the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God when it's in your heart will change your life. Notice again in verse 18, for the Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while is treading of the labor is worthy of his wages. Now this goes back to Deuteronomy and it pulls it from Deuteronomy 24. Certainly if you're working and the ox wanted to reach down and eat something, you would let him. Don't, don't prevent the man who needs to eat from eating. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, notice what it says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, because of what they're doing, because they're willing to lay down their life. This is what he's talking about. Those that will sacrifice for you to hear that Word of God. This is the love that we're to love the world with. We're, we're to lay down our lives, this agape love, to esteem others higher than himself. So that man that is willing to esteem others higher than himself, sacrifice so you can have the Word, he's the one that's worthy. Worthy. Not on the same level as God. His position and worthy of that honor financially. Again, in Hebrews 13.7, notice what it says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So they become an example. These are the kind that, that need to be honored. They won't be looking for money. They're just going about the Father's business bringing the Word of God, comforting people with the Word of God, exhorting and encouraging the people with the Word of God. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Think about that. For me, I'm going to give account for every one of you. One day have I brought the Word of God. The unadulterated Word of God. Every elder, pastor, will be account. But let me take it a step further. Every father and every mother who is in Christ and grandmother and grandfather will give account too. In a different way. But we have that responsibility. Going back to, again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, how, how the parents are to, to walk with their kids. Talk about the things of God. When they walk, when they lie down, they're to speak to them. It doesn't matter whether you're 80 years old. You are to walk with your kids. Talk with them. Share them. Now, the elders, in, in, is a, in a general sense here, um, they're overseers. That means they oversee the flock of God. They're, they're leading the people in the truth, guided by the Holy Spirit, bringing the Word of God. Notice, though, in Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. First, Christ purchased the church. He laid down His life for the church. Now, they're made overseers. They're responsible. They're accountable, as I said. And I'm just showing that these things follow up. But take guard for yourselves first. That means for me and every elder that I need to spend time with the Lord alone apart from you. It's not studying just to teach. It's studying to hear God personally and intimately. The message flows out of an overflow of a relationship with God as God speaks to me personally or any elder, any pastor, any teacher. Because unless we hear personally, intimately from God, there is no message for you. It is then only words without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the term pastor, as I've used here, it gives this idea of shepherding, watching over, feeding, it gives authority and a leading function. It's spiritual maturity, but not lording over them, controlling every step. It means that we're to open the Word and instruct. And when someone is in sin, we're going to see that especially next week. How are we to deal with that? Well, verse 19, it gives us a little different twist. Notice it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So God has provided a means for protecting elders, pastors, overseers, bishops. Why? Because people tend to attack people that bring them the truth when they don't want to hear the truth. You know, in your own life, in your kids, when you confront them with the truth, they don't want to hear, and they, they'll kind of throw things out. So you're not to entertain something, a thought, unless there's two or three witnesses. And that's very important. And that goes back to Scripture. Again, Jesus gave this in Matthew 18. How, when someone's in sin, how we're to deal with them, how we're to confront them. Because elders occupy this leading position, in a sense. They are a target. They have a bullseye. You know, in the last few years, there have been the leaders and pastors and even evangelists that have fallen and taken out large groups because they were trusting in a man instead of trusting in God. They were following a man instead of following God. The enemy causes them to fall. But again, he says, if there's sin in the camp, how are you to confront it? Go to them. Matthew 18 will explain in detail. First individually. Then bring another witness. Finally, two witnesses. And then if necessary, bring it before the church. Now that doesn't mean here on Sunday morning we're going to open this up, but it means bring it to the elders. It means if there's a sin in the camp, it will affect everyone here. If there is sin in your home, it will affect that whole family. 
and that's the principle here. But do not entertain unless there's two or three witnesses. Don't listen to it. Don't let it land on your ears. Don't pay attention to it. Don't assume. You know, when people come up and, and they say, did you know so-and-so did it? I don't even want to hear it. You know why? Because the moment I hear it, it taints my view toward that person. Or it will go, hmm, I wonder. No, I'm not looking at you, Mike. I wonder if that's really true. Do you know how it works? When someone says something, instantly we believe it. Even if it's not true, it's the nature of the old man. And every one of us here struggle with it. It says, don't even listen to it. Unless they bring you two or three. Don't focus on it. If you have a question, lay it before the Lord. That's the principle. You have the assurance. Scripture is not going to come up. Surely your sin will find you out. How many like that passage? Surely your sin. That means if you're in sin, you're going to... Oh, it's going to be revealed. Well, I, I kind of like it, but I don't like it. I kind of like it because if my sin, if I have a sin and it's exposed, guess what? i got to deal with it. And that's good. And that's one of the ways that God disciplines us, making us deal with our sin and say, yes, I have sinned against you, God, and I've sinned against you. Forgive me. What can I do to make this right? What do I need to do to change? God, change me. But on the other hand, we don't want anybody to know what's going on here or what's in our private life. Isn't that true? That's our private life. But God knows all things. And that's so important to understand. I remember when I, when I first became an usher at the church I was at and I was standing at the door and the pastor was praying or the assistant pastor, I can't remember, and this person stomps out of church during prayer and they go sit in their car. And I go out and... I go and talk to them, and I, I, I pray with them. Everything was fine until he prayed, but there was something that was said in prayer that triggered him if it was directed at them. And I'm going to say maybe it was. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him that was revealing that sin. And sometimes, in some cases, though, people just begin to talk around the back and they ruin a person's reputation. This is why the Scripture makes it very clear. Two to three witnesses. Things have to be examined. If we judge, the Scripture makes it very clear. Judge righteously. And I find that very hard to judge righteously. Because none of our hearts are perfect and right. We don't know the whole picture. We don't know why God allows a particular thing. Well, notice the rebuking of the elders. It's in verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is not talking about the flock of God. This is talking about the leaders. Those leaders, those that are elders leading the church, guiding the church, if they're in sin. And, and notice the word again, those who continue in sin. Those who do not have a broken and contrite heart. Those who are not grieving over their sin, but they continue to practice sin. It's those and those alone that it's talking about. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Why rebuke them in the presence of all? That's the flock. Because if they continue in sin, they're not only sinning against God, they're sinning against you. And they're sinning against this community. And they're misrepresenting who God is in this congregation. Because if your leadership, those that are, whether they be worship leaders or assistant pastors, however it would be, if they continue in sin, guess what? The flock will follow in that same sin. Again and again and again. And it's one of the ways when we were talking about apostasy and when we get again to apostasy, we'll get in the end times in, in 2 Timothy, that's the beginning of apostasy justifying sin. The leadership lead him straight, not just in doctrine, but in their very example. So those 
need to be confronted, confronted before others. And I know a, a congregation right now where one of the, the leaders had to step back in that congregation. Came before the congregation and spoke, you know what? That leader said, I am in sin and I need to step back. And he stayed in that fellowship. This is very important. He stayed in that fellowship and continued. Because the goal is only discipline. The goal is to restore that person back to the ministry at some point, but setting healthy boundaries around them that they can minister. Because, again, that calling is irrevocable. And that's so important because if God's given them a gift, that gift needs to be dealt with. But they need to deal with the sin first. If we had to do that, we don't have to do that. But if we had to do that in here, everyone would be kind of fearful. Man, I don't want to have to go up in front. No, I'm not going to have you come and go in the front. But that idea is, really, one day, I kind of use this illustration. I don't know if it's true or not, but when we're at that judgment seat of Christ, I kind of have a feeling there's this big screen and every one of our sins is going to be passed on the screen and everybody's watching. We're not done with fireworks, I guess. And every one of our sins is going to be up there and it's going to strip away the pride in our life and we enter into eternity. Something has to empty this life here. So by doing this, it makes people think about sin. I don't want to ever have to be in that situation. I don't want to have to go before my family or my friends. I like the way the Amplified puts this verse in verse 20. It says, as for those who are guilty, this is very important, guilty and persistent sin. Those who are habitually doing sin and just refuse to change. And if they refuse to change, even with rebuke, they need to be removed completely from the congregation. Ex, what's called excommunicate. We've talked about that before. So the goal is to, to rebuke them, admonish them in the, in the presence of all, but with that hope that, that they would be returned back to fellowship and then one day that they will be using those gifts for the glory of God. Now, no one likes to confront people in sin or anything. I don't. I remember one time, I, it, it took me six months before I confronted somebody. I just kept praying, Lord, I don't have the words. You know, we can come up with words with the wrong heart. But you need the heart of Jesus, don't you? Heart of grace. Heart of mercy. Not condescending, not judging and condemnation. The goal of restoration. I like what William Barclay wrote on this verse. I believe it merits really reading. It says, those who persist in sin are to publicly be rebuked. The public rebuke had a double value. It sobered the sinner into consideration of his ways and wakened him in the sense of shame. It made others have care that they did not involve themselves in this likewise humiliation. The threat of publicity is no bad thing if it keeps a man in the right way, even from fear. A wise leader, though, and this speaks not just to leaders and pastors, but to you as moms, dads, and grandmas and grandpas, a wise leader will know when it's time to keep things quiet in a time for public rebuke. Just because someone's in sin, it doesn't mean we have to publicly rebuke them. But again, Matthew 18 makes it clear. Go to them privately. Confront them in love. Confront them with your own broken heart that you love them so much you don't want to see them continue in that and pray that they will come to the censors. He continues on. And he talks about really the, the gossiping. He says uh, this would be a happier world and the church would be a happier church if people would realize that it's nothing less than sin to spread and repeat the stories about people 
of whose truth they are not and cannot be ensure. Irresponsible, slanderous, malicious talk does infinite damage and causes infinite heartbreak and such talk will not go unpunished by God. It's like a person if they come here and visit and they start talking about their other church, something. we're here to be with God. I don't want to hear about that. I want to hear what God is doing in your heart. We want to glorify God. Don't let it land here. Don't participate in it. If you feel God is moving you, praise God. But let your eyes be locked upon Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith. Look with me in our text, verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus of His chosen angels and maintain these principles without bias and do nothing in a spirit of partiality. This is hard for, for someone that's in leadership. The, the influence of people. If you knew someone is giving money and, and, and you, you kind of want to go with them. Churches are put in that situation. Or they've even gone where people are giving money and putting names on seats and pews and all kinds of things. They want to acknowledge them because people want to be called attention to. But everyone has to be the same. Whether they give a lot or they give a little. The greatest giver I saw in the Bible besides Jesus Christ giving His life was probably the widow and the mite who gave her all. What does God want from you today? Your all. Your heart. If you give Him your heart today, you will give Him everything that will please Him and honor Him. So it's important that there not be this prejudice or this bias that people are treated equally. Now Paul's writing this to Timothy and he's writing it to all pastors and he's writing it even to all of you that can benefit because we're all influenced in different ways. And he kind of feels if he's writing this that Timothy's maybe a little weak. Maybe he's afraid that Timothy might, you know, Timothy, you're not strong enough. It needs to be exhorted. And sometimes people just aren't strong enough. I remember when I first became a pastor, it was very difficult. I was talking to David. When I got in front of a mic, I, I pushed it away. I, I didn't want to hear myself. And I had to realize that God has called me and I need to be there no matter what anybody else thinks. We're worried so much about what everyone thinks. Isn't that terrible? We're so worried what everyone else thinks. You get in the mirror, you make your hair right, get your teeth just right and everything. We're so worried what everyone else is going to think. We're not always doing it for ourselves. And we're worried about others who are so fickle, they love you today, and tomorrow they're going to gossip and talk about you and hate you. There's only one person you really need to worry in this world. That is Jesus Christ Himself. He's the only one that really matters. Certainly we should care about what people think as an ambassador and not to misrepresent Christ. That's very important. But I believe that Paul, when he's writing that, really didn't believe that Timothy had that moral courage and it's something that he needed to grow and be strong in. Well, look with me in verse 22. It says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Therefore, share responsibility in the sins of others and keep yourself free from sin. Now, this is the selecting of the elders most often taught, but I think it's twofold here. Sometimes the Scripture has a, a, a double application, not a double meaning, a double application. That means that when you're selecting leaders, and we saw that when we're looking at 1 Timothy do not lay hands upon people hastily. They need to be proved. They need to be tested. We had someone years ago and they said, well, they walked in the church. I'm an elder. I want to be your elder. And I, it, it, The Bible makes it very clear in 1 Timothy 3. That, that's a wonderful thing if you want to do that. It's an admiral thing if you're willing to lay down your life for the flock. That's what it was when it was written. But sometimes some people just want to call attention to themselves. Sometimes they want to use that to manipulate people, take advantage of people. So he says, be careful. Don't lay hands 
quickly. And in the first context, probably is don't make haste on ordaining people, other elders, other leaders. Avoid quick decisions. Anyone ever make a quick decision and regret it the next day? Every one of us have probably done that. You know, if it's God's will, you want me to tell you how do you know? Wait one more day. Wait one more day. If it's God's will, it'll be God's will tomorrow. When a board meets, and if we're not all in agreement, I tell them, you know what? Someone says, hey, I'm not so sure about Let's wait another month. It's okay. Because God will show us that we want the very heart of God. That's what's important. The heart of God. God's will. God's perfect best. There needs to be much prayer. There needs to be thought. There needs to be counsel. There needs to be examination. Why, why do this person want to be in this position? Or why do we want to put them in this position? We need to examine our own hearts. Now it's interesting though, look back in your text in verse 19, we see an accusation. And then in verse 20 in your text, we see this conviction and this sentence we were talking about. In verse 22, we, we see the restoration of the fellowship. I also believe there's this thing when people have been disciplined. Maybe it's a, it's a leader that has been disciplined or maybe it's someone in the flock of God. Don't be quick. Don't be hastily to make a decision. They need to be tested. Need to be proved. If an elder is in sin and he's been rebuked, let him walk it out in his life. Let him show. Set healthy boundaries. Because if you hastily make a decision, there is consequences for that decision if it's wrong. And we know it in our personal lives. In this case, it's detrimental in two ways. One, it's going to affect the flock. Two, it's going to misrepresent God. And they're sent into camp and it will affect others. Now, this laying of hands is important. It, it simply signifies identification. You remember in the Old Testament when, when again, it was uh, the Day of Atonement and, and they would transfer the sins to the goat and they would lay hands upon it and the, the goat would run away after the blood was on it. It was, in a sense, symbolic of the sins being transferred and carried away. There's no power in these hands when we lay hands upon people. We're simply identifying what God wants to do. We pray that we're led by the Lord. The power is in the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and working in the person of God. But if we say that this person, we're going to make him an elder, and he then all of a sudden makes a left turn. He was one that believed everything he heard, and that would be detrimental being an elder. It takes time to find out, and we have to be quick that we don't lay hands upon people. We don't want to identify with their sin by hastily ordaining someone or bringing someone back into a place where it's going to stumble them. 1 Timothy 5.22, it says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, therefore you share in the responsibility of the sins. We're going to be accountable for those decisions. Keep yourself free from sin. Look at verse 23. It says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Now, Craig Keener uh, writes a commentary. It's a good, great little background commentary, New Testament and the Old Testament. It's brief, cut to the chase. And he writes that the wine was, it was distilled, it was very watered down, it was not heavily fermented. And the people, the water was so bad that they would drink and mix a little wine with the water because the water was bad and it kind of buffeted. Now again, Timothy's being exhorted, no longer drink water exclusively. Timothy was appeared to be avoiding drinking wine other than maybe a communion. They used it at communion at that point because he didn't want to stumble people. And in this case, there were those who were saying, you can't drink wine. And we, we saw all of the, the legalists that were going on. But here what it's talking about, it's very important. Notice, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. The wine that he's speaking about here 
is for medicinal purpose, for health. You need to drink this. The water's not good. We know your motive. We know your heart. God knows that. But you need to drink a little wine. God will accept that, and you have to let those people have their problem. Is it wise to drink wine? Well, the wine we have today is much different than it was then. For some people, they can drink it and not be a problem. For some people, it's a problem. They don't know when to stop. Is it wise? I'm not sure it's so wise. I choose not to in my own, but I'm not going to condemn anybody. Every person has to make their own choice. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Some people, it, it masters them. They, they become under the influence. And you read Proverbs, how it talks about the wine and, and how they get carried away. Look again in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful. You see the same thing, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. They don't build up. It's not needful. It's not necessary. It's not going to help me in my walk. You know, it's things that people have to work out in their own heart. But in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That means everything that you do, whether you drink, eat, or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. In your workplace, you are to be the best worker. You are to work hard and glorify God, especially next week. We'll see that in our text. So important to be that witness, to testify. Well, look with me in verse 24. We see the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds are good and are quite evident, and those which are otherwise can be concealed you know, it's interesting. This, this passage kind of goes back to verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Therefore, share in the responsibility of the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. See, the idea is, you know, there's some people, if you see them, you know you need to, to stay away from them. You know their lifestyle. You know where they're going. You know their, their conversations. It's obvious. But some people, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. There are some, not just within the church as far as pastor, leaders, and things, but in the end, the Scripture is very clear. Surely your sins will find you out. Again, some will... Blow the trump as they go through life. I, I, I am a druggie. I'm this. I'm that. And some look holier than thou, but they're in bad shape. We have to pick and choose our friends very wisely, personally. We have to pick and choose those that are in leadership, the officers, the leaders. It's very important because the load they carry, the spiritual warfare that will come across them. Because they shepherd the, the flock of God. That's what this passage is about. The best thing a, a church member can do is to make it possible for the pastor to, to use his spiritual gifts. The ministries that God's entrust him, the hindrances, uh, remove those hindrances, remove those distractions. Use that gift of helps. Be available. But individually, each one of us must ask the question, Lord, what can I do to help? When you come here, Lord, how would you have me be a part? I see a need. Is this what you'd have me do? Let me ask you a question. No answers. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? 
See, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all righteousness. When we're born again, we've acknowledged our sinfulness, our need of him. He comes into our heart. We make him the Lord of our life. But do we really understand that? I'm going to encourage you today to, when you go home today, some, some point today, make a note. Take a piece of paper out and write, how is Jesus Lord of my life? Do I put him first? Am I looking to glorify him? Am I looking to follow him? Is he preeminent in my life? Do I put him before all things or am I so worried about my own personal life, my own personal decisions? What makes me comfortable? The Bible's clear. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. If God calls you to do something and you know it's in the Bible, even if you don't feel like it, will you do it? Is he the Lord of your life. If he's not the Lord of your life, then, then you need to go back and reevaluate. Are you really born again as a Christian? Because many people will deceive themselves. Is he the Lord of your life means that he's preeminent before all things. That means for you, when you start the day, you start with him, you walk through this life with him, and you end with Him. And if He shows you something, you respond in a way that the Bible shows you. Would you stand with me? Father, thank You today for Your Word. It's challenging, Lord. It's convicting. But at the same time, it gives us insight to our walk. The place that you'd have us be lord we want to make you the lord of our life and in every way lord we don't want to deny you of anything we want you to be glorified so lord if there's anything in our lives that we're not yielding to you we're not trusting in you we're not following you in any way lord i ask you to show each of us personally, intimately. I ask, Lord, that You would give us the conviction to do what is right. To stand up for You, Lord. To honor You. To glorify You. And all God's people said, Amen.